Let's turn to John 17. Before we get into our study this morning, second part to what we began a couple of weeks ago, since last week we were dealing with the resurrection and redemption. I had um, shared some statistics uh, last week concerning American Christianity that were somewhat uh, shocking as it pertains to the number of people that claim to be Christians and yet we see the condition of, of, of our country being very, very worldly and actually at the point of needing to be judged in a great way by God. But I wanted to add a couple of things to that because once again, one of the things that we should be very concerned about is where people who actually profess Christianity, where do they stand when it, when it pertains to the word of God? And what's interesting is I you know, dug a little deeper into some of these uh, uh, polls that were taken just recently. And uh, 9% of Americans, 9% of Americans as a whole, have what is called a biblical worldview. 9%. I mean, that's, that's shocking. 17% of those who claim to be Christians have a biblical worldview. 17%. So what is, what is being done in churches today? Where is the word of God? Where is the love for God's truth anymore? We seem to love issues more than the things that the Lord would have us to be grounded in as we see the day of Jesus Christ approaching. And I have to tell you, the day is coming. Now, I'm not, I don't consider myself a person who wears a sandwich board that says the end is near, but I wouldn't mind doing that just to let people know that the end is near. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we should know that because every day we are looking for the coming of Jesus. So until he comes, we need to be well-equipped. And we will stand on God's word. And we will continue to have what is a biblical worldview because what else do we have? What else do we have? God has given us his word. His word is true. His word is being proven true each and every day. His prophetic word is being made true each and every day as we open the newspaper, as we look at the news and see what's happening in places like Syria and Israel. These are not just happenstances. This is reality. Jesus predicted these things thousands of years before. The prophets predicted them. 2,000 years ago, the prophets predicted them. So we ought to pay attention. And as Christians, we ought to start believing what the word of God says. Amen? All right. I got off one soapbox and let me get on another. 
the teaching one. John chapter 17. Verse 9. Jesus is praying to the Father in the presence of his disciples on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane and, of course, Jesus on his way to the cross. And in the previous three verses, Jesus was speaking of his disciples, and this is what he goes on to say in verse 9. I'll come back to that in a moment. He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The hour had finally come for Jesus to be glorified by the Father and for the Son to glorify him by whom he was sent. The Lord truly prayed what can be called the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that only the Son of God could pray. Now, I know that I mentioned this last time that traditionally we call the prayer in, in the section called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 in particular, we call that the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught the pattern of prayer. He didn't say, pray this prayer. He said, pray in this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. But you see, that cannot be the Lord's Prayer because Jesus does not need to pray that prayer. We do. Or at least not that prayer, but in that manner of praying. He didn't need to pray for forgiveness because he was sinless. He was the bread of life, so he didn't need to pray for bread. He didn't need those things, but he knew that we did. So he taught us how to pray by giving us a pattern of prayer. But here in John 17, truly this is the Lord's Prayer because it is only the Son of God that can pray this prayer. Revealing for us what we may have always wondered as to the content of his many solitary meetings with his Father. 
But this was the hour for which he had come. The hour for which he had been looking. Not only since the foundation of the world, but even before the world began in eternity past. There was already, already something that Jesus was looking forward to. As he said in Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8, Then said I, lo, and this of course comes prophetically from the psalmist David, Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. And that very prophecy would be confirmed so wonderfully by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, when he quotes from that psalm and says, Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. <clears throat> now, he, be, he goes <clears throat> to the previous verse, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Psalms, and he says above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, speaking of the law, that he may establish the second, the coming of the Messiah, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ was willing to come into this world and had been willing to come into this world from even before the foundation of the world. He was willing to come into this world. He was willing to go to the cross and he was willing to settle once and for all the question of redemption. The question of paying that price, the ransom price for our lives. And now the cross is before him. And in a few hours he will be hanging on that tree in the place of sinners, in your place and in mine, bearing our judgment. And yet he looks on to the cross in perfect confidence, knowing that death cannot hold him. He looks to the resurrection, just as in the triumph over the grave in Lazarus' death, for God the Father was glorified in that resurrection, and sitting between that grave and his own, when Gentiles asked to see Jesus, and Jesus would say, Father, glorify thy name, that the Father himself would say, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. I have glorified it at the resurrection of Lazarus, and I will glorify it again at the resurrection of my son. And now God is about to be glorified. He is about to be glorified in the resurrection of his son, and when that sin question is settled to the Lord's satisfaction, it will be the glory of God that will demand the resurrection of the one who settled that question. And just so that you'll understand, if it hasn't been cleared enough, when we talk about the glorification, when we talk about the Father being glorified by the Son and the Son being glorified by the Father, when it talks about his disciples glorifying the Son, Please understand that when we glorify God or when we glorify the Son, we are honoring them. It is an honor. Glory and honor is to be given unto our God. The glory itself is the light that we shine upon him. For glory speaks of light. I'm saddened by the way the world loves darkness. 
But I'm even more saddened when people who should know better find themselves wanting to be more in darkness than in light. Now, last time we focused our attention on the hour because Jesus said at the very beginning in chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the hour is come. What hour? Our first study dealt with the hour of his glory, the hour of his power over all flesh, the hour of his eternal life to be given, the hour of his finished work, the hour of his restored glory. It was the hour of his revelation. And it was the hour of belief and mission accomplished. The belief of his disciples. Truly now they believed in Jesus. That was our first eight verses of this text. But now our attention in Jesus' prayer focuses on his disciples. Which are really the subjects of the previous passage in verses 6 through 8. So let's look at that to get back into uh, context. Jesus said in verse 6 in his prayer, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Speaking of his disciples. Now let me also interject here that he's not only speaking about his disciples, but he's speaking about all disciples in every generation to come. Please take hold of that. Understand this. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. And what Jesus continued then to pray was, was striking. Because as you, as you noticed in this passage, he's talking as if all of this was now settled in their hearts, even though right before, at the very end of chapter 16, they were sincerely saying, Lord, we get it now. And he says, do you really believe? Because in just a, in just a couple of hours, you're going to be scattered and you're going to go each your own way and you're going to go to your own houses and you're going to get away for a time. Do you really believe? And that's a reminder to us that every day we need to check our hearts. We need to examine ourselves to see that we are daily in the faith of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus goes on to, to pray then was striking and full of meaning not only for his disciples but also for every believer in every generation. Going back to verse 9 now, he said, I pray for them. I pray for them. Now those words in themselves are just so rich of meaning because this is Jesus talking. Now listen, you know, we're pretty sincere when somebody asks us to pray for them, right? I mean, we say, look, you know, listen, you, you want some prayer? I want to pray for you. You know, if we don't pray for them that very second, that very moment, we might forget later to pray. I don't know about you, but the older I get, I can write things down and forget what I wrote down. Because I forget where I left what I wrote down to pray for somebody else later on. It can happen. And sometimes it's not convenient to pray at that very moment. So you want to be able to pray for them. So you want to keep it in your memories. You write it down, maybe in your Bible, whatever. But see, that's the thing. So what I'm saying is, look at what Jesus said. I pray for them. 
It is significant that Jesus is praying for you. That he prayed for his disciples. That he has prayed for each and every one of us down through every generation where there are believers. And there have been believers in every generation since. He said, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Whoa, that's an interesting one. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. They belong to you. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. I think that's pretty clear what Jesus is saying. What belongs to the Father belongs to him, and what belongs to him belongs to the Father. Can't separate them. And I am glorified in them. I am honored in my, in, in, in my disciples. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. I come to thee to pray for them, because they're in the world, and I won't be. Holy Father, and by the way, Jesus just let us know who can be called Holy Father. There's only one. It's the one true God. He says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. Keep through thine own authority and power those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are. The first thing we notice is that the Lord did not pray for the world. Not now anyway. It was a specific statement that he made. Clear statement. I do not pray for the world. And the question is why? Well, it wasn't because he and the Father didn't, didn't love the world. I mean, in fact, they loved it deeply. Deeply enough for us to have memorized in our minds and hearts John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, the world was the very reason Jesus had to come to the earth. To save the world and to keep it from perishing. It was a world that God had created. But man faltered and failed. Tempted, tempted by, the, by the enemy. The one who truly should be responsible and will be judged for what he did. It was not because the world didn't need prayer. It certainly did need prayer and he prayed for the forgiveness. By the way, he prayed for the forgiveness and conversion of men in the world, even on the cross. Right before he dies, what does he say? Luke 23 to 34, Father, forgive them for they, do, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. A Roman cross, a Jewish throng, Jew and Gentile, Father, forgive them. He didn't distinguish. He prayed for all. But they know not what they do. And the reasons why Jesus was praying only for his disciples here in this prayer were part of his prayer. First of all, Jesus' disciples had been given to him by his father, verse 9. They belonged to his father, but they had been entrusted into his hands. I think this is a very serious thing for us to consider. How that Jesus took the responsibility given to him 
of the disciples that were belonging to the Father and given to him to, to care for, which he did perfectly for three and a half years. Cared for them. Taught them, loved them, rebuked them. Strengthened them. He was responsible for them and their welfare. And hence he prayed for them that his father would grant them special strength in the days to come. May I say that this is also something that he prays for for us today. What the disciples themselves were going to have to face after the crucifixion, after the death of Jesus and after the resurrection and after, the, uh, 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 after Pentecost and the reception of the, of the Holy Spirit into the, into the church and the beginnings of the church. That was the, that was the commencement. And here we are toward the end, living in the last days, and now we need that very special prayer as well because we need special strength from God to continue on in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to continue on in, in, in the service of, of God and of, of, the, of, the, of the sheep of his pasture, the church. So this prayer could certainly apply to us as believers in this present generation. It's really interesting how the Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle Peter both take hold of this kind of prayer. They, they take hold of this, this attitude of prayer for the church. Just as Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us, so the, the, the apostles prayed for us and want us to pray for one another. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That is something that, uh, of course, we already kind of alluded to when we talked about how Jesus was ready to come to this earth even before the foundation of the world. He's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. The church continues to be something precious to, to the Lord, and it is to be something precious to us to pray for one another. And Peter as well, who was there when Jesus was, was praying this prayer, says in 1 Peter 1, 2 through 5, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again or, or made us born again unto a living or lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible an undefiled and that fadeth not away. Paul talked about it as, as something reserved in heaven for us. Peter talks about it as an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So that is a continued uh, reminder to us 
of the very heart of Jesus to pray on our behalf, to pray for what we need in the midst of our situation here in these last days, as it was in the first days of the disciples. And another reason for praying for his disciples and not the world was because these disciples belonged to both him and the Father. Verse 10, all mine are thine and thine are mine. We are the mutual possession of both the Father and the Son. Together, they are deeply concerned for the believer's welfare. Together. And, and these are things that we as believers need to understand and we need not take for granted. The fact that God, in his fullness, in the, in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are deeply concerned for our welfare each and every day. Though they know the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And the son was confident on his father's hearing and answering his prayer in respect to his disciples. Please understand this about Jesus' prayer. He wasn't praying as if, well, I just hope my father will listen to me. He knew his father would listen to him. And he would want us to know that when we pray unto God, the father, that he knows and hears our hearts and our prayers. But we have to pray. We have to seek his face. Yes, it's okay for us to ask others to pray with us. Sometimes we, we need that support. But folks, we need to pray. As Jesus prayed, in full confidence, the Father hears us in respect to whom and for whom we pray. You remember back in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, that Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But now get this, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, but neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Uh, that's pretty secure. But then read the next verse. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I would say that's pretty good security right there. Where would you want to be? I want to be within Jesus and the Father's hand. You see how they work in concert together? Can't separate them. I and my Father are one, Jesus said. Same heart, same compassion, same love, same mercy, same grace. Later in John 17, just a few more verses later, Jesus would pray, verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Have you ever taken the time to meditate on this one phrase, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me? 
We're always pretty sure that God has to love his son better than he loves us because we're a bunch of sinners. You know, if we were to take a basket and pass it around, just put your sins in here, basket wouldn't be big enough. Right? You understand what I'm saying? We need, you know, more than 12 baskets that have to be bigger than this room. That's the extent of our sins, or maybe more. We say, how can he love us the same? But that was Jesus' prayer for you and for his disciples. That thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. The point is, he has loved us with an everlasting love, agape, agape love. Unconditional love. That's how he loved his son and that's how he loves you. The third reason that Jesus prayed for his disciples had to do with the fact that they glorified him. They honored Jesus. Their lives brought glory to Jesus. And even more after the resurrection, even more after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, And despite their frailties and their faults, they lived for him by obeying his word and working for him with loyalty and allegiance. They lifted him up to the world and proclaimed him to be the savior of the world and the Lord of the universe, even to the extent of their own death. He was praying that they would become strong in their lives and become powerful witnesses for him as they eventually would. And he was praying for that in us as well. That we would be witnesses of Jesus Christ with our whole life. With our whole life. I'm not talking insurance here. We're not talking term life, whole life. We're talking whole life, like your whole life spent for Jesus. Paul and Peter again would echo this desire for generations to come in their own prayer. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, honored in you, And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter as well, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, the light of his glory. And then lastly, because Jesus was leaving the world and returning to his Father, the whole mission of preaching the gospel to the world would rest on the shoulder of his disciples, verse 11. And let me read that to you because it says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name, thine own authority, thine own power, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. They they would now go out into the world as his ambassadors to proclaim his word to the nations. 
They, they would need to be strengthened. They would need to be equipped by God to stand against some powerful of opposing forces. And there were powerful opposing forces then. There are powerful opposing forces to us today. We need that strength. We need that equipping. The same equipping that they had then. Let's not get into this idea that we are better equipped than the apostles then because we have internet. Or because we have Wi-Fi. You know, back in the 60s we had hi-fi. Remember hi-fi? Stereo. Some of you might don't know what I'm talking about. It's all right. Now we have Wi-Fi. It doesn't make us better. We have all of the Word of God. They didn't have what we have. But they began to write the manuscripts that were anointed and, 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 and God-breathed to give us the Word, the pure Word of God to this day. The sad thing is that man has perverted that, polluted it, softened the Word of God through modern translations in many ways. Sad to see, sad to hear. Is it any wonder then that 9% of Americans have a biblical worldview? Or 70% of so-called Christians or, or those who claim to be Christians have a biblical worldview only? 17%? Wow. Those are opposing forces even in the church. And all of his followers and disciples need that special prayer. His whole mission of reaching the world for the Father depended upon their endurance, the endurance of his disciples, upon their perseverance and upon their faithfulness. But not just in that generation, but in our generation as well. For them and for us, he asks great things of his Father. And this is what we need to learn about Jesus' prayer. And this is what we need to learn about prayer, period. Is that he asks great things of his Father. He doesn't have this mindset like some people do today. Oh, listen, Lord, I know you're busy all over the world, but, you know, if you have a moment, you know, can you, can you help me, you, you know, kind of get, get back in track with my, my, my bank account? Because I'm kind of, eh, eh, you know. But, you know, I know you're busy. What kind of relationship is that? Our God is great, but, you know, he also teaches us how to make sure we keep that <laughs> together. The point is that we take the seriousness of the way Jesus prayed to our own hearts because he asks great things of his Father. Think about John 20, verse 21, after the resurrection, before his ascension. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. He's asking great things of the Father. He's sending them out, his disciples. And he gives them a great commission. By the way, remember I said that uh, not enough people in the church really know what the great commission is. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Now, do you notice how he starts? He says, All power is given, me unto, uh, or given unto me in heaven and earth. Okay, now that you know who I am, hey, go. That is not a suggestion. It is a command. To his disciples, he says, go, 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 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you alone. I've given you another comforter. I've given you the spirit of truth. I've given you the word. I've given you myself in all of that. So go. But then he gives us one other great tool. You might even call it a weapon needed for the promulgation of the gospel of Jesus Christ by his disciples. And that tool, that weapon, if you will, is called unity. In John 17, verse 11 through 16, it says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. That is a high calling. That we be one as the Father and Son are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. He calls Judas Iscariot the son of perdition, which is a term that is used one other time in dealing with or speaking about the devil-possessed beast Antichrist. Interesting, isn't it? Except for the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Speaking of Judas, Judas Iscariot. And now, <clears throat> excuse me, and now come I to thee. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. The world hath hated them. The world hates us. I have to stop here very quickly and, and, and tell you. There are groups of people in our own country today, country founded on the principles of the Word of God, groups today that are having workshops on Christian privilege. What that equates to is a bunch of angry people that don't like Christians. <laughs> or Christ, or the Word of God. At Harvard University, uh, 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 actually back when it was established, the 17th century actually, from Harvard University just recently uh, put on probation a Christian organization on its campus. So, what's happening? Did Jesus not know what would happen not only in his time but in ours? I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. 
I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus prayed that the Father keep his disciples together as one and to keep them from the divisiveness of the world. He would deal with the evil of the world later in verses 14 and 15. But the disciples were in an extremely divisive world. He had kept the disciples while he was in the world and lost none except Judas. And Judas' betrayal was in fact the fulfillment of scripture in Psalm 41 verse 9. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But now the world that had turned on the Savior would turn on the saints. And soon the world's rage and ridicule would be turned on these men and their converts down through the ages. One thing that we need to know right now is that the world would not change. And listen to me carefully. The world would not change. And Jesus had not come to change the world, but to call out of the world a people for his name. In the end, the world would have to be destroyed. We were studying on Wednesday night, the last couple of Wednesday nights, about 2 Peter chapter 3, where it talks about the heavens being destroyed, being burned, the elements thereof, and even the earth. But in their place would be a new heaven and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, but a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. And so Jesus requests from the Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. God's own name is pledged on their behalf. And of course, the promise of the Holy Spirit would come upon them soon as well. So this was all a part of that preparation for the opposing factors that would come against them. The Lord would keep the disciples as well as Jesus did because the Father was both faithful and able and because the Father and the Son always worked in concert together. Another thing that the Lord would give his disciples is joy. Joy. Verse 13, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' prayer was that the disciples would have his joy in all of its fullness. Now this is not happiness. This is joy. It's, 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 it's a different characteristic. It's a different kind of attribute. Because understand that this was something that he had just minutes before spoken to them about on the road to Gethsemane, and don't look as it, and don't think that they were all looking at him. Oh yes, joy! Praise the Lord! No, they're still in confusion. They got the deer in the headlights thing. Nonetheless, Jesus still told them in John 15 verse 11, "These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full." But understand that this is the joy of what is yet to come as a result of Jesus' victory over sin and death on the cross. They would understand it soon enough, and Jesus knew that they would. 
But that joy is the strength of every believer. Because in spite of what we see, the Lord is at work sovereignly and powerfully on behalf of all those whose hearts are loyal to him. We have to check our hearts. Are our hearts loyal to Jesus today? Because if they are, then you can be rejoicing in the Lord in spite of all of the things that we see in this world happening. It brings, us to, my, it brings to mind Nehemiah 8 verse 10. When the people had gathered after the building of the walls around the city of Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah, they finally had the opportunity to hear the word of God and the word of God is being spoken to them and, and read to them and declared to them and the people begin to weep because of the tremendous guilt upon their very lives over having failed the Lord in their lives. But the statement goes forth in verse 10, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry or sorrowful, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And then lastly, Jesus speaks and prays for their protection and perseverance in the midst of persecution. Verses 14 through 16. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You see, the world and Satan, and I'm just going to make these, these comments because we're coming to the table of communion and I want to make sure that we have time to do this. But simply to understand this last section here of our text today, the world and Satan stand against the love of God because it is not the love of indulgence. It is the true love of obedience. A new commandment I give you, Jesus said to his disciples. Love one another as I have loved you. The world and Satan stand against the holiness and the justice of God because both must stand before God and give an account of their lives and deeds, sins and pollutions, wickedness and evil. The world and Satan stand against Jesus because he is the one who claimed to be the Son of God and truly is. And if he is truly the Son of God, then total allegiance is due him and neither the world nor Satan are willing to serve anyone other than themselves. And so Jesus prays. I have given them thy word. The world has hated them because I, they are in, uh, they're not of the world even as I'm not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. They have, we, his disciples, have, we have a calling. We have a mission. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil one. And really, it should be the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The Lord himself says to his 
Father. They are not of this world. Another thing we have to examine ourselves about is, are we too much of this world? Are we too much in this world? Are we too dependent on this world? Or should we not be completely and totally dependent upon our God, who is greater than the world because he created it? Who is greater than all of the things that we need because he is the one who gives what we need? I leave you with 1 John chapter 2, or at least I don't leave you because I'm going to be here for communion, but I would want you to hear this before we come to the table of communion, and that is 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. This comes from John who was there listening to Jesus praying this prayer. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, places the world above anything and everything else, that's what he means by loving the world. Then the love of the Father is not in him. And that's a very serious indictment from, God, from Christ himself and the Holy Spirit himself through John. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the three things that destroyed man in the garden is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away. And the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He that doeth the will of God, believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He that loves one another as Christ has loved us. He that is merciful as Christ has been merciful. He that forgives as Christ has forgiven. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever.